Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Bothell Amplified. Pastor Joe here. I'm excited to be sharing with you the next sermon of our generosity series, More of One Small Thing. This is part two, and today we draw from the story of Joseph in Genesis, where he is now uh, second in command, and the choices that he makes as he looks to bless the world uh, as they deal with famine. Uh, Check out the sermon here. Good morning. My name is Jennifer Payne. Today we will continue our three-part generosity series called More of One Small Thing and turn to Genesis chapter 41, verses 47 through 54. During the seven plenteous years the earth produced abundantly, he gathered up all the food of the seven years when there was plenty in the land of Egypt and stored up the food in the cities. He stored up in every, every city the food from the fields around it. So Joseph stored up grain in such abundance, like the sand of the sea, that he stopped measuring it. It was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, Joseph had two sons, whom a zenith, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The second he named Ephraim, for God had made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. The seven years of plenty that prevailed in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in every country, and throughout the land of Egypt there was bread. Holy words for God's people. All right, good morning again. Uh, welcome to Bothell United Methodist Church. We're so glad you're here. For those of you here who are on site, uh, for those of you who are worshiping with us online, we're so glad that you're joining us here at Bothell United Methodist Church, located on the unceded territory lands of Stiligwamish, Coast Salish, and Duwamish peoples. It's a joy to be together today. Um, it's The sunshine is out here in Seattle. Uh, it was out really early for those of you who got up to watch the Seahawks game. I don't know if been all right, we got, we got a couple of hands. I uh, uh, expected to see more people here from the 9 o'clock service who might have uh, delayed their start, but it's all right. We're good. Um, I got new glasses this week. Thanks for noticing, y'all. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, no, I, I went from this, uh, th- these very thick framed glasses to, to these frameless ones, and I was th- uh, talking to Joanne this week, my spouse, about how different it is. Um, not having those borders and having to relearn where uh, my eyes go. And I've actually hit myself on the wall a couple times, turning too fast, not knowing uh, where things are. And I was thinking about how it takes practice, right? It takes remembering and it takes conditioning to see the world in a new way. That was good, somebody. That was good. I think that's what we get to do here, right? For this next little while, for us to claim who we are as a people of faith, we get to do life differently. We get to see life, experience life differently in a new way. When the world tells us that we are better off siloed or we're better isolated or we're better in competition with one another, we say no. We want to live together in community. We're willing to do the hard work, to condition ourselves, to keep practicing and remembering that we are called to live in a different way. 
And so whether you've had great weeks or tough weeks, this time together is intended for us to be in community, not to check your baggage at the door, but to bring it with you and to say, hey, I'm here, all of me. I'm here accepted just as I am. And we want to name that for all of us. You, you are welcome here for exactly who you are, who God created you to be, and you belong. And we especially want to say that for those who have been discriminated against or pushed out of places and communities in our world, even in places of worship where you said you're not welcome here. No, you, for exactly who you are, you are welcome and you belong. If you're gay or lesbian, transgender, bisexual, or questioning, know that you are welcome, know that you belong. If you're black or brown or indigenous, if you've been discriminated against because of the color of your skin, know that you are welcome, know that you belong. If you find yourself homeless or houseless or in the lower economic brackets of our community, if you're single or divorced, partnered or separated, know that you are welcome, know that you belong with all of your unique gifts and abilities, created to be bearers of Christ's image to all the world, know that you are welcome, know that you belong. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together as we enter into this sermon time. Oh God, be present here and in all the places from which we are worshiping, Move in us and through us that we too would be moved and changed. Speak to us, we pray. Less of me, more of you, none of me, all of you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I remember when I was in college, I bought my first lottery ticket. Uh, I was quote-unquote financially independent for the first time, meaning that I had a credit card that my parents helped me pay. <laughs> I wasn't excessive. I, I walked into the local 7-Eleven on, on campus. I, I bought a single $2 ticket, and I sat down to pick my numbers, my, my brother's birthday, my parents' birthdays, uh, lucky number seven, uh, number eight for Scottie Pippen's uh, Dream Team jersey, USA Dream Team jersey. And then I waited. Uh, and then I played again the week after that, and again the week after that, and the week after that. I remember talking to my pastor who, who told me that the United Methodist Church actually considers gambling to, quote, be a menace to society, deadly to the best interests of moral, social, economic, and spiritual life, destructive of good government and good stewardship, end quote. So I asked him, uh, is that true even if I give a portion of my winnings to the church? And he suggested that maybe I should consider giving uh, portions of my losing, too. I would later find out that something like 70% of lottery winners end up bankrupt in just a few years after receiving their large financial payout. And while there's not enough data to, to maintain and back up that statistic, there, there's been frequent enough reporting that's allowed this number to remain relevant. And I, I wonder what it might say about our relationship with money. Think about this, 78% of professional football players who play in the NFL become bankrupt within two years of retirement. And 60% of professional basketball players become bankrupt within five years of retirement. Y'all, money is a moral issue. 
And I think Jesus thought so as well, right? Something like 25% of all of his parables in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about money or reference money in some way. And our founder, John Wesley, our Methodist founder, he, he recognized that the idea of money is indeed a moral issue because his preachings and his life examples and his personal practice were filled with these uh, conversations around money. But meanwhile... They say that the top three things to not talk about at the dinner table is politics and religion and money. And maybe that's the problem, right? Our society has such an unhealthy relationship with these things that we don't allow them into the fabrics of our lives. Money, or at least the love of money, is the root of all evil, according to Paul in 1 Timothy. So we push it aside. We we take the morality out of money, we only understand it as a means to get ahead, except money is a moral issue. And so I think we need to talk about money, often. You know, last week we we launched this generosity series, More of One Small Thing, and, and we're naming the ways that we live generously are signs of our discipleship. They they are signs of our growing relationship with God and with our world. And here at Bothell, we, we talk a lot about generosity in terms of our gifts and our time and our talents, but but I confess that I, I, I haven't been specific enough when it comes to talking about money. And maybe it's because I've been conditioned to think that money is personal and, and that we don't talk about personal things in public. Or maybe it's because the last econ class that I ever completed was in high school. Or maybe it's because we have people who no longer attend a church here because I asked them whether or not they'd be turning in a pledge or because I noticed a major change in their giving and I called to check in. And that's sad. That grieves me. Church, we have to stop being afraid of talking about money, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time doing that. For the fiscal year of 2013 to 2014, our annual budget was just shy of $600,000. By a couple years later, in 2017-2018, our budget was just shy of $850,000. And it was in those years that we made the intentional decision to invest in two new positions, a director of youth and a director of children's ministries. But within those same span of years, our average income was about $705,000. And while we don't spend always 100% of our budget for most of those years, we were dipping into our reserves. Since then, our annual budget has averaged $840,000, and our average income annually was $710,000. And part of that was due to the pandemic. In fact, in 2020, 2021, our income was about $675,000, so that's $35,000 less than the average, $125,000 less than the budget for that year. With the PPP loan and credits, we were able to secure uh, with our reserves, with your generosity, through special campaigns, we have been able to be fairly financially stable despite the numbers, and we give God thanks for that. But most importantly, 
we have been able to live fully into our purpose of becoming Christ in the community. New filter systems uh, using UV technology allow people to gather safely in our building, not just things related to quote-unquote church, but uh, things related to NA and Naranon and domestic violence groups and scouting and, and music groups. And new cameras and streaming equipment allow us to grow our community beyond the Puget Sound region uh, for worship and for major life events, for weddings and baptisms and funerals. Our Vacation Bible School continues to grow with more and more families, allowing us the privilege of spending a week of fun and belovedness with their children. Just a couple weeks ago, a thousand people were in the building for Rock the Knock, our annual Halloween event. Bothell Community Kitchen continues to provide meals for the community. The youth have continued to prepare care kits for our homeless and houseless siblings. We dream big. We continue to dream big. And we're expectant of how God invites us into partnership, into this holy life-transforming work. But at some point, we are going to have to confront some realities. Because our budget is a moral document, we will have to make some choices and prioritize the ways in which we live into that purpose of becoming Christ in the community, and that's okay. It's okay to have those conversations. It's okay that we will be having tough conversations coming forward. And we'll talk next week about what we do with these numbers and some of the things that I've shared today. But, but for today, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about the choices that we make when it comes to our finances. By the time we get to our text, right, we meet Joseph. He's an adult. He's already experienced much in his life. He is so loved by Jacob, his father, more than any of his other brothers, that he's given this beautiful garment, this robe, as a sign of his father's love. He gets these dreams where his brothers and even his mother and father bow down to him, and his brothers get jealous. They they sell him off to a foreign land, and they tell their father that Joseph was killed. He ends up in Egypt, right? He's sold to a man named Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard who loves Joseph, who trusts Joseph until his wife tries to seduce him. And then Joseph ends up in jail where he interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker and eventually the dreams of Pharaoh himself. That's from Genesis 37 onward. And if you go back, I encourage you to go back and read through the story to to find the nuances, to see these connections, and especially pay attention to Genesis 39, 6b, which happens to be my favorite verse in the whole Bible. You want to know what it is? Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. (laughs) You're welcome. Here we have Joseph, right, who's gone through all that he's gone through. He's in the service of Pharaoh now, and and he's going through seven plenteous years. He's gathering up food. He's storing up grain in every city. He's storing up in abundance, Scripture says, like the sand of the sea, so much so that he stopped measuring. He was beyond capacity of measuring. The story doesn't stop there. Because after we get through those seven years of plenty, just a few verses later, we enter into seven years of famine. 
But because there was abundance, because there was enough grain throughout the land, the people of Egypt and around the world could come and eat and live. Let's take two quick takeaways from this story. First, note this, that that Joseph collected the food, right? Joseph collected the grain. He stored things not for the sake of keeping it to himself, but so that others could eat. Joseph had all the power in the world. He was second in command to Pharaoh. He was ruling the region on Pharaoh's behalf. In theory, Joseph could have raised all the taxes so that he could live more comfortably. He could have collected the grain so that he could take care of his own. But instead, he collected so that others could eat. I wonder how different our world would be if if we just operated in that way. I wonder if the price of insulin would have increased 600% over the last 20 years despite little to no change in manufacturing costs if only our world operated in that new way, in a way that cared for the collective whole. Right? Last week, Pastor Dave said something like this. He said, in the kingdom of God, in the new kingdom of God, we earn, we, we accumulate wealth, we gain so that we can forgive debts, so that we can make friends, so that we can live in community, so that we can live in a new way. How different would our world be? But here's the second thing. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that Joseph started off by doing some accounting. Right? I don't think he could have imagined or known how severe the famine was going to be, even if he knew that it was coming. And so he collected. And he kept collecting, and he collected some more, and I imagine that every so often he would audit the storehouses. He would check in on how much was there on how much they needed to hit a certain goal, how much he was past these goals, and then he kept collecting. And he did so, I believe, because he was so sure that God had a plan, that no matter how limited and small-minded his foresight would be, that God would be in control and that others would be blessed by God through him. And church, that's why we talk about money. That's why we will continue talking about money. It's why you should talk about money. It's because we are so sure that God has a plan. That no matter how limited our minds and our foresight and our imaginations might be, that God is in control and that our communities will be blessed by God through us. Amen, someone. That's why we talk about money, to celebrate and declare the ways in which God is at work in the world. Do you remember what happens after the famine? The story continues in Genesis, and the famine, we we hear, it reaches all the way to the outskirts of Egypt and beyond into foreign lands, and it reaches to Jacob and his sons, Joseph's brothers. And they hear that some man in Egypt has stored food. And they say, we got to go there. 
We got to live. We got to survive. The sons go. Joseph recognizes them as the same people who sold him into slavery. And the scene ends in this beautiful room where Joseph declares to them, I'm your brother. He hides and he cries. He weeps and comes back and they share in a feast. This story ends at the table in reconciliation, in healing, and in love. That's how this part of the story ends. If we lived... If we operated in a way different than the world, if we had the courage to declare to the world that the power and impact of the money that God has used in us and through us to bless others, imagine the ways in which we would see transformation. I'm afraid to talk about money. I remember growing up, I was, uh, my, my father and I, every Saturday, we would go to the bank, and he would get uh, crisp $1 bills that he would uh, uh, withdraw, and they were brand new. They were beautiful dollar bills, and he would get uh, one for me and my brother, and he would put them on our dressers, and they would be uh, what we would use for offering the next day. And I said, Dad, when, when can I get a job? When can I start doing money? When can I, you know, give my own offering? And he said, well, you know... Um, that your money is my money and my money is my money, right? So it'll be okay. <laughs> and he was joking. But it developed a sense of this, what do we, how do we talk about money? Right? What are the ways in which we are allowed to talk about money? And I think it conditioned me to be afraid and to be challenged to um, withhold the ways in which I'm free and public about these things. And I'm afraid that that's what the church has done too. In so much of not talking about money, we've lost the ability to impact the world. And that scares me more. So my current encouragement is this. As we go forth this week, as we go into the holiday season, as we think about the ways in which we have earned and the ways in which we will spend that money, how do we declare to the world that God is at work through that whole process? That in the earning, that in the saving, and that in the sharing, that God does have a plan, and that that plan is for the transformation of our lives and the transformation of our communities, even the boldness to declare that there will be transformation in the world. Amen? Amen. And let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this time together, for this opportunity to be gathered online and on site, to be gathered in community. And we pray that you would continue to inspire us to be the people you call us to be, not just in our actions, not just in the ways in which we think we are uh, transforming the world in your name, but that we may truly do so, impacting with the gifts in which you have provided for us and the gifts that we return back to you. And so we pray that you would inspire us to be bold as the people you call us to be. For it is in your holy name that we pray. Amen. All right, so that was the second 
sermon of our generosity series, More of One Small Thing. Uh, it's interesting the ways in which we refuse to and sometimes are afraid to talk about money, but I hope that we can be inspired to speak to the transformation that is at work in our lives and in our communities, and the ways that God is blessing the community through us and the impact that we might have. Next week, we're going to talk uh, more specifically about what we might do, especially related to our pledge cards and what those mean. So come back next week for that. In the meantime, have a great week. Talk to you soon.